Well, dear friends, would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 4? And we're going to be reading together this morning verses 1 to 22. So a little bit longer reading. Before we read the Word of God together, let us seek our Father again in prayer and ask His help. Heavenly Father, we come as those who live by Your Word alone. We come, O Lord, acknowledging the words of our Savior and Master, Jesus, that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from Your mouth. So Lord, would You take Your Word, press it to our hearts, nourish our faith, and strengthen us. Grant to us understanding that only You can give. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, would you stand, if you're able, for the reading of the Word of God, Acts 4, 1-22. And as they, that is Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they call them and charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, You must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. 
For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Thus far, God's holy word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, it's been several weeks since we were last in the book of Acts, but when we were there, we saw together a wondrous work of grace. A man, lame from birth by the power of Christ, was enabled to walk and leap, and he was praising God. And then Peter, you remember, used the occasion for an impromptu sermon as the Jews ran to see this man who had been miraculously healed. Peter told the crowd, don't stare at me and John as though our power or piety did this thing. No, it was God's servant, Jesus, whom God has glorified. And then Peter preached to the masses, this Jesus whom you delivered over to Pilate, whom you denied when his innocence was clear. This is the Jesus, the holy and righteous one, whom you wanted to crucify in exchange for that murderer Barabbas. You killed the Lord of life, the captain who blazes the trail to life through his resurrection. But while these crimes are scandalous, there is hope for you, Peter told them. In Christ, There is forgiveness, there is refreshing, there is the hope of final restoration when Jesus returns. And he told the Jews, you are privileged to have this gospel set before you first. Yet there's an urgency to seek Christ now because every soul that doesn't listen to the greater Moses will be destroyed. Curse lingers if you don't come to Christ. Now, brethren, Peter's words were both compassionate and confrontational, setting forth mercy for the repentant and judgment for the stubborn. And yet, as Peter is continuing to preach an evident spiritual power, the devil's agents move in. Now, as we noted a few weeks back, the miracle of chapter 3 sets us on a trajectory of trouble. For as Satan did in the ministry of Jesus, he now rises up to oppose. So as the trouble begins, We're going to see three things together in this text. Note with me in the first place, suffering and success. Suffering and success, verses 1 to 4. A rising tide of interest is coming from the people listening to Peter, but now a flood of opposition is about to break. And the flood is filled with three groups of people. First, there are the priests, those who are presently serving in the temple complex because All of this is going on in the temple complex. And there secondly is the captain of the temple. This is the guy who's in charge of the temple security. You might think of him as something equivalent to a police commissioner. Uh, He is religiously and spiritually, or politically I should say, powerful, second only to the high priest himself. And he is the one who had the officers of the temple go out to arrest Jesus in the garden just a few months back. And then the third party amongst this flood of opposition are the Sadducees. Now these guys are the aristocratic leaders in Jerusalem, and they have a great deal of control over what's going on in the temple. The high priestly family, Annas and Caiaphas, ruled the temple with its profitable animal sales, which Jesus had confronted, they make up the party of the Sadducees. And what is it the Sadducees believe? 
That's really important in this context. First, they only accept the book of Moses, that is Genesis to Deuteronomy. They deny the supernatural, angels and demons, and most specifically here, they regard the idea of a bodily resurrection as ridiculous. Now, this was a flashpoint between them and the Pharisees, and Paul is going to exploit that later in the book of Acts. But Jesus had already shown the Sadducees to be foolish stooges. Do you remember how in Exodus chapter 3, Jesus quoted in a controversy with them that the Scripture, the Sadducees claim to believe, Exodus chapter 3 about the burning bush, the Scripture, they say, denies the resurrection. But Jesus says, no, this passage about the bush proves that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. For He is, not He was, He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Interestingly, in the previous chapter, that's how Peter began his sermon. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob raised Jesus. Well, the Sadducees just can't have that. So Luke says these three groups were greatly annoyed. They were wearied or out of patience for two reasons. One, Peter and John were teaching the people. Now here's the jealousy thing. The priests are saying, that's our job. Who do you think you are? How dare you come into our precincts and teach the people? Don't usurp our authority. And then secondly, they are put out in frustration because Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees just can't have that. It threatens the core belief of their whole system. It would say the Pharisees are right about that whole last day resurrection thing. But worse, it would say the Sadducees are total fools in arranging Jesus' death because now He lives. So while all Peter and John did was open the Bible and explain texts like Exodus 3, Deuteronomy 18, Genesis 22, and other prophets starting from Samuel and going forward showing how the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ were all prophesied, These religious fools will not hear the Word of God. They simply perceive what's happening as a threat to their position. And let it be noted, dear friends, that a heart in love with sin is not open to reason. The prideful and jealous heart doesn't consider the facts of Scripture. It considers self-interest and acts accordingly. There is no thought here as to whether Peter and John are speaking the truth. They don't even take a moment to reflect on that. There's no examination of what they're saying. They just want to know, how do we shut these men up? And the answer initially is, lock them up. Throw them in the slammer. Verse 3, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. They didn't didn't mind a, a nighttime trial to have Jesus condemned but that was a little inconvenient. So just lock them up. Let them think about it. Let them stew in the slammer and see what they're going to think when our pride and power forces them to back down on the morrow. They'll rethink all this righteous or this resurrection baloney if we just press them. Well, as the bullying tactics employed on Peter and John commence, what will be the first of many unlawful imprisonments in the book of Acts, note the contrasting response going on of the people. 
Look at verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. The religious authorities you're expecting to take seriously the argument of the Bible, and they're not. The people are taking seriously the argument of the Bible, and it's the result of people being converted. We have the number of men came to about 5,000. There's some question here, is this talking about men exclusively, that just men went from 3,000 to 5,000, or is this the whole body of believers? And scholars basically say, we don't know. Uh, But what we do know is 2,000 people being converted is an astounding thing. Suddenly, through the ordinary means of preaching, the church rapidly grows from 3,000 to 5,000. Now, there's no doubt these are extraordinary times in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the miracle of the healing of the lame man was extraordinary. But that miracle did not produce faith in these people. It drew a crowd, but preaching was the means to faith. And let's see here, dear friends, that Christ is blessing as His Word, detailing His works and power and person, are being proclaimed. While the enemies of the gospel use force, Christ's servants just preach. We preach Christ, and Jesus does the extraordinary. He saves sinners as the Word of God is simply opened and applied. Brethren, this is God's means. This is how faith ordinarily comes, by the hearing of the Word of Christ. Are we hearing the Word of Christ? Are we taking the Word to heart, turning from wickedness as these people were doing, and following Jesus as the risen Lord? Further, are we valuing the role of preaching, which is Jesus' main way of saving us and growing us in the faith. And yet Luke is also stressing to us, as he did at Pentecost, that while some hear and believe the word as it's preached, others mock and rail. To some, the word of God preached is an aroma of life. To some, it's the stench of death. Indeed, the word of the cross never leaves people in a neutral position. The word of God cuts and divides. The word makes a distinction. You are either for Christ or you are against Him. And there is no middle ground. What is it that makes men to differ? Well, it's no doubt doubt the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's grace at work in the particular fruit of repentance. You see, the people were strongly confronted. You've done this and this and this and this with respect to the Lord Jesus. Peter pulled no punches. He got in their face about their sin. He rebuked the murder of Christ that they committed. Their complete disregard of justice. And under that rebuke, they don't say, I don't really like the way that you're talking to me right now. They humble themselves. They are convicted of sin. The leadership hears the same rebukes and will not acknowledge their sin. There is no humility. What about us? Brethren, there is no hope for a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl who suppresses the truth, ignores sin, 
and exalt self in pride. God hates the proud. But for the broken and contrite sinner, for the humble, there is abundant grace. And let it be noted by us that the Word of God faithfully preached leads to two things. Suffering and success. Sinners hate the truth. They snarl at it and those speaking that truth. They attack and slander. But while here they put God's servants in chains, the Word of God is never chained. Amidst the sneers of these wicked people, God is plucking people from the burning. God is bringing people into His house. The seed of the serpent rages, but the sovereign Lord is taking sinners and making them His own. Bless God that He saves through this means. And praise God this morning if we ourselves have been by the Spirit humbled, convicted of sin, and led to see that Christ is the risen Lord to serve Him. Well, then secondly, see with me, not only suffering and success, but intimidation and confrontation. On April 17, 1521, Martin Luther was summoned to the famous Diet of Worms. He was to appear at 4 p.m. that day. Now, Luther, as you may or may not remember, had been previously excommunicated by the Pope for his insistence on justification by faith alone and Scripture alone as the authority rather than popes or councils. Now, Luther was to answer for his views before the emperor. Now, that whole scene has been romanticized to portray the bastion of Luther's fortitude, but actually, Luther was staggeringly intimidated by the moment. That was really the aim. Here is the poor monk ushered into the bishop's palace to face the emperor. And he stands there before young emperor Charles V, six electors of German nobility, the pope's representatives, archbishops, bishops, dukes, margraves, princes, counts, deputies of imperial cities, ambassadors of foreign countries. Those who describe the scene say there were thousands of people inside and outside the facility. And then Luther's adversary for several years now, Johann von Eck, put the questions to him. Eck, as the examiner, already indicated that the hand was against Luther. It was a predominantly anti-Luther note. And Luther was dumbstruck. He was scarcely able to speak. He would be given no opportunity for debate. It was recant or else. And Luther stumbled. He actually asked for another day to think about his response. He was supremely alarmed. He was intimidated. The next day will produce the here I stand courage, but that's going to take another 24 hours of soul searching. Well, here the scene is quite similar to the intimidation factor in Luther's ordeal. The dignitaries of Jewish leadership have gathered after Peter and John's night in jail. And we have, verse 5, rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Verse 6 with, note the names, Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. This is a chilling scene. It's a, who do you boys think you are, 
kind of a moment. John and Peter sat in the middle of them, and the Sanhedrin with its most distinguished members are present to squash the brimming movement. And we should remember, particularly with Annas and Caiaphas, that these men had tried Jesus. Caiaphas had presided over the court that condemned Jesus to death. And where was Peter when that happened? He was in the courtyard of the high priest trembling before a servant girl. Now, things will be different. The bullying begins in verse 7 when we read that when they had set them in their midst. Again, try to imagine it. Scowling Jesus haters looking at you. Men with blood on their hands. They have not shown any hesitation to kill the innocent. They killed Christ. And yet they start here with a question targeting authority. Verse 7, By what power or by what name did you do this? Note there the vague reference to the miracle. Did you do this? Do what? Well, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to mention the obvious display of supernatural power with Peter and John standing there. But Peter won't let them obfuscate. Peter blends irony, clarity, confrontation, spiritual and scriptural citation, and then the exclusivity of Christ. Peter, Luke tells us, verse 8, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And brethren, let us not pass over that quickly here. Jesus had once told the apostles, as they would face suffering, being dragged before religious authorities, that they need not be anxious about how they would defend themselves. For, Luke 12, 12, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That promise is being fulfilled. It's one more way we should praise God. He keeps His word. Christ sends His servants out as sheep in the midst of wolves, but He doesn't leave them alone. He equips them to stand for truth. So the Spirit enables Peter to do what he, in reliance on the flesh a few months back, couldn't do. A mere servant girl said, boo, and Peter fell apart. Peter gave up everything. Peter denied Jesus. The folks that night in the courtyard, they had no power to do anything to Peter, and still Peter crumbled. But now, by the Spirit's power, before an assembly that can do something, Peter stands firm in the faith and he speaks. And he begins respectfully, calling these men rulers of the people and elders, but then he notes the irony. Are we being examined for doing a good deed? For healing a lame man? Isn't something wrong here that you don't, you guys don't seem to recognize what is good? That's the insinuation. And then Peter transitions noting that the real issue at stake here is the means, verse 9, by which this man has been healed or more literally, by which this man has been saved. Now that's something that we miss in our English translation, but I think it's, it's crucial. The verb to save is about to take on greater significance than physical healing. It will, in verse 12, be applied to a more radical rescue, a salvation that only Jesus can perform to reach into the death of our heart. That's the point of using this word here. The lame man's healing, giving life to his dead feet and ankles is symbolic of a deeper disease, a soul mired in 
darkness and death to which only divine power could bring healing. And Peter is about to direct them to the means of the healing. Verse 10, Let it be known to all of you. Here's biblical warrant for good southern. To all y'all. That's what he says. And you can imagine him looking across at all of their faces to press the point. Let it be known to all y'all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, and here comes the boom, whom literally and emphatically you all yourselves crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By Him, this man is standing before you well. Do you see how Peter does not shy away from contrasting the leader's sinful violence and God Almighty's vindication of Christ? In other words, he's saying in no unequivocal terms, you guys are guilty, every single one of you. Not only are you committing injustice right now by placing us on trial for doing good, you crucified Jesus. You denounced Him as a God-rejected man. But God proved you wrong. God raised His Son, the Lord Jesus. And the proof that Jesus lives isn't simply, I'm telling you He lives. The healed man standing right here is proof. This living and exalted Lord made this man what He is. He made him able to walk. What courage is in Peter right now? Look at how he's willing in the previous sermon to call the crowd murderers. And then he gets confrontational even with the most powerful. You yourselves crucified him. Peter won't shrink back with the fear of man. Brother, we should learn something from this. The strength to resist sinners is not in us. It's only in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we must stand in the power of the Holy Spirit and call sin, sin. And we can't back down, calling out even the most powerful and condemning their evil. And then to heighten the stakes, but also to strike their consciences, Peter points out, look guys, this is all fulfillment of Scripture. Psalm 118 it's a text Jesus himself had quoted in his last week of life to the Jewish leaders. And then Peter says, verse 11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. They've got to think about the metaphorical imagery here. For builders, the very ones charged with building a building, to reject a cornerstone would be a deliberate and willful choice. In other words, these guys might have been ignorant of God's great plan for a suffering Savior, but they were not ignorant of Jesus' power, Jesus' authority, Jesus' wisdom, Jesus' glory. He was fit to be a cornerstone, to be the one you built your foundation on. But they disregarded His fitness. They rejected Him. If anyone should have seen that Jesus was fit to build a foundation on, it's these leaders they're the builders. And yet, even with their rejection and their act of crucifixion, what has happened? Jesus has become the cornerstone. Your wickedness <clears throat> didn't prevail. Jesus is the cornerstone for God's house. God chose Him over against the foolishness of these men. 
And God is building a structure. What is the structure upon which Jesus is the cornerstone? It's us, the church. God is seeking worshipers, drawing them to Christ to rest their souls on the stone laid in Zion. And that building, that church will stand. Peter is telling them, you guys made a wretched choice. And God has shown you your stupidity, your hostility, because Jesus lives. And if you persist in your rejection, it will be to your eternal peril. Because there's only one way to get in God's building, to be the very temple of God, to taste His salvation and have security. And look at how Peter points it out with the exclusive statement. Verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter's saying, salvation is found in no other person, no other authority, not your authority, no other power whatsoever. Salvation is only in Christ's name. Not your name plus Christ's name. Not the same of any other religious leader whatsoever synchronized together with Jesus. It's Jesus Christ alone. He was given by God as the only means of approach to the Father. There is access to God in no one else. You come in Christ's name, resting on Christ's merits, or you cannot come at all. And if this statement could get any stronger, Peter adds the word, must be saved. That word must is a word of utter necessity, which is again to say, if there is salvation at all, you must have Jesus. What is the significance of this statement? We could look at a whole sermon on this. I won't start preaching another sermon. Maybe just to simplify it. We're not saved on our terms, but on God's terms. God sent His Son out of love, as the Bible tells us elsewhere, that men might be saved. But the only key that unlocks the door of salvation is Jesus. But not just any Jesus. It's this Jesus. The Jesus who was crucified, bodily resurrected, ascended on high, and is now seated at the right hand of God. You don't get to redefine who Jesus is. It's this Jesus. Because only this Jesus possesses the qualifications to save our souls. Only Jesus has infinite perfection that can cleanse us as guilty sinners and clothe us with His own righteousness. Brethren, let us hear the exclusivity in Peter's language. All modern relativism is shattered right here. All religious pluralism is dashed on the rocks. It is salvation in Jesus alone, or it is no salvation at all. He is the Lamb of God. He is the true bread. He is the living water. He is the light of the world. He is the door. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through Him. Do you see how clear Peter is with the Gospel? You have to have Christ or you're dead in sin. You must come in Jesus' name or there's no place for you in God's building. Are we hearing this and then singing? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I don't look to my Jewishness. 
I don't look to my family's heritage. I don't look to my religious leadership. I don't look to my ability to quote the Bible. I don't look to my good deeds, not even the best things I've ever done. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Is that true for us this morning? Is it still true for us who maybe have heard this message our whole lives? Because, dear friends, there never becomes a moment in time, never, where we are accepted on our names. Our need of Christ doesn't stop the moment we believe. We need Him every hour. We don't get in the door with Jesus and then stay in a state of salvation as we rely on ourselves. There is never anything that we do or anything that we have that can stand alongside of Jesus. That would rob Christ of His majesty in saving sinners. Salvation is completely His work from beginning to end. There is only salvation in His name. We are but poor, miserable sinners. But with Jesus, we have acceptance. Are you still standing on Christ alone? Nothing of you. Finally, see with me. Tenacity and threats. The intimidation plan has failed. Peter doesn't back down. But rather than hearing what he actually says, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is raised and healed this man. You guys killed him, but God raised him. You rejected the cornerstone, but God made him the cornerstone. He's the only way to be saved. Rather than receiving that message, the leaders only see the manner of Peter's speech, the tenacity, the boldness. Perhaps John 2, because Luke comments, verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, that is, they were not priests, not those trained in the rabbinical schools, they were astonished. They were struck dumb, blown away. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. In other words, these guys grasped this boldness has come from their association with Jesus. This should strike us because the Lord is always choosing the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish to shame the wise. Think of how He's done this with Abraham the old and Joseph the incarcerated, Moses the stammerer, and Gideon the least, and David the youngest. God is overturning the ways of the world. Jesus provoked similar wonder when He appeared to be just a weak nobody, proclaiming God's Word with authority. But in their wonder at the scene, these men do nothing. It's one of the saddest verses in the Bible, I think. Verse 14, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They don't repent. They don't cry out for forgiveness in Christ's name. They don't praise God for healing this man. They don't extol the wonder of the miracle right in front of them. They say nothing. Again, God's promise is proving true through the Lord Jesus. Jesus had told His apostles in their coming time of confrontation, Luke 21, verse 15, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. 
just as in the throwdowns with Jesus, when the religious leaders were left with egg on their face, unable to withstand them, they don't do anything. They don't admit wrong. They don't shift their allegiance. Because earthly preservation of their power is more important to them than eternal salvation. What a grievous sin. And it should lead a question to our own hearts. Are there things to which we would rather cling than throw off to embrace Christ and His transforming power? Do you love your sin? Do you love your money? Influence? Some pleasure from immorality or something else? Do you love the delusion of being right so that you will not repent and run to Jesus? Or if we have run to Jesus this morning, if we claim the name of Christ, when the preaching has shown us to be in the wrong and our folly is exposed, whatever it is, foolish anger, corrupt speech, lustful eyes, do we just sit in silence and do nothing? How does that go for you men when your wife tells you that you've done something wrong and you know you have and you say, nothing? Not that I've ever done that. Do we run to the light? Do we run to Christ for cleansing? Well, the sad scene only gets worse. They kick Peter, John, and the other guy out to deliberate, but their deliberations are dumb. They can't deny the obvious miracle. It's a notable sign, verse 16. If the miracle is legit, if others recognize it too, wouldn't the logical thing to do now be to spread the name who brings salvation? To extol the power of Christ? And yet, what do they determine? Jesus' name must be barred. No one can speak in His name, they decide, verse 17. Why such a mind-numbing choice? Well, to have Jesus' name spread would mean the resurrection idea that the Sadducees think isn't true. It would prove them wrong. They have to admit they're wrong. And they won't do it. Further, as Caiaphas had said back in John 11, they're fearful of the Romans coming and taking their positions of power. Something, ironically, that will happen in judgment, because they've refused to bow the knee to Christ. They will not be wrong, and they will not be demoted. So calling the boys back in, they charge them, verse 18, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The sense here is as comprehensive as it seems. We order you not to mention His name, not to explain His name, don't say it, don't teach anybody about the resurrection, don't talk about Jesus in public and the power of His name. It's a total gag order. And it's unlawful in view of Psalm 118. Jesus is the stone rejected. Yes, but God has made Him the cornerstone. He's resurrected Him. Jesus is the only means by which we can be saved. If there's salvation, then Christ has to be proclaimed. His character, His works. He must be spoken of. He must be taught. So Peter and John make a legal and a theological point. Verse 19 whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. You guys are the authorities, yes, but your authority is not ultimate. You're setting yourself up against God and you need to judge if that's a good decision. But then they add, verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Christ has commissioned us to do what we're doing, to witness of Christ, to preach in His name, and we will not stop. Now, as you can imagine, this 
chap the leaders hide. They would kill them if they could, but at this moment, because of the people's praise, they feel constrained. So they just further threatened them. It was like that for a time with Jesus when there was great popular appeal and they just couldn't get their hands on Jesus. Things will change, but right now, Peter and John go free. What's the abiding lesson that we should take from this? The church can never alter the gospel to make it acceptable to hostile people. Additionally, the church cannot, cannot, Stop speaking of Christ and His resurrection in the face of commands and threats. God must be obeyed. This is really a first commandment issue. Our God will rule us and none will come before Him. Because who really has the power here, fellas? The religious leaders appear to be the ones with power with all their pomp. But do you notice how the text is emphasizing their total impotence? They imprison Peter and John, but they can't say anything against them, and they can't do anything to them. They're not in control. But look at what God has done. He's raised Jesus. He's filled Peter and John with the power of the Holy Spirit. He's made them bold as lions. He's healed a man locked in a 40-plus year affliction. And what else can God do? He can take anyone who rests on the name of Jesus, no matter how sinful and corrupt, even if you were a Christ killer. And He can make you alive and fill you with His Spirit. No one can silence this name. We must speak of Him. Brethren, we live at a time in our culture where the pressure to stop saying Jesus and His resurrection power is getting intense. We cannot but speak of our Lord. And this passage is telling you maybe two things in closing. Evil men will always oppose the gospel. They will intimidate, they will mock, they will imprison, they will threaten, they might even kill. But they will never overcome the power of Jesus' name. And though evil forces secondly come against the church, and that attack may be fierce, Jesus will empower His people to speak anyway. Well, are we going to be those people? Are we going to flake out under pressure? Or are we, by grace through faith, equipped by the Spirit, going to dig in our heels about the truth and speak of the one way of salvation? Is there salvation in no one else? Brother, may God give us courage to testify of Christ whether men will embrace Him or not. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your Word. We praise You for Your sovereign power. We praise You that You have exalted Christ. And His name is the name in which we are saved, are being saved, will be saved. Lord, we come clinging to Jesus alone. We ask, O Lord, that You would give us present courage in the face of hostility. And we pray, O Lord, that Your Spirit would enable us to know what to say and how to say it as we are stared down by ever-present opponents in this present evil age. Hear us, O Lord, for Your name's sake and fill us with that gospel boldness that we need. For we pray this in the name of Christ our Lord and all of God's people said, Amen.